This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. Monday was an important day for pandemic recovery in Ontario's long-term care homes. General visitors under five years of age are able to resume visits, and the number of visitors at a time per resident will increase from three to four, including caregivers. And all residents, regardless of vaccination status, will also be able to enjoy social overnight absences. In addition to these changes, as of Monday, mandatory COVID vaccination or test policies end for workers in long-term care, as well as in hospitals, schools, and child care settings. It almost sounds like normal, with the exception of masking, which will continue to be mandated in nursing homes until April 27th, even after this Monday, when most indoor settings in the province will no longer require face coverings. To talk about the eased restrictions in long-term care, Jane Brown was joined by our Zoomer squad, Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer Magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, chief operating officer and chief policy officer of CARP. We've been talking to a lot of our CARP members, and there's really very mixed reactions to this. Some people think It's much too fast. Uh, Other people are so pleased to know that they're going to have more access to their loved ones and their loved ones are going to have more access to them. The government is calling it cautious. Some people think it's too much uh, uh, too soon. And I guess what we really know is that we don't know yet. And what's going to happen a few weeks uh, from now, uh, we're holding our breath. Certainly it is good news, though, Bill, that more people may visit each resident and that residents can leave for a night to maybe stay with family in a different setting. Absolutely. The social isolation that uh, older Ontarians have uh, gone through in the last two years has been very traumatic, very hard on their uh, mental health, uh, both both the residents themselves and the families. So uh, hopefully that... uh, uh, part of the, the the problem will ease uh, for people, but there still is real fear about whether or not this virus has really been uh, beaten and that we won't have a resurgence like we did the last time we thought we were going to be opening. Right. Uh, Peter Mugridge, what are your thoughts on this day? Well, you know, it's, it's such a positive uh you know, I don't have anyone in long-term care. I did until a few years ago, but I don't know anyone now. So like, I don't have the same worries that people with family in those homes will have. But I just think this is a huge step forward. Um, it seems like, um, you know, two years, you can't leave the house without wondering if you have your mask, if you've been vaccinated, can I go there? What do I have to do when I get there? You know, are they open? Just all that kind of... Um, aggravation that comes with the restrictions and the mandates is lifted off our shoulders now and it's a great thing and um you know um families that were divided by along vaccination lines can get together again and and not you know bury the hatchet and so 
I, I think this is all very positive, Jane, and it seems um, like even if, if the virus does come back in any way, it's just, it's just going to be masks back, you know, and not, not shutdowns or uh, further restrictions, it looks like. Uh, Daryl Bricker sitting in for David Kravitz again this week. Long-term care, I mean, it's been such uh, a huge crisis point uh, during the pandemic. And, you know, we all want to believe that it's come to an end finally. Well, I, I, I'll go with Bill on this. Uh, the, the issue is that there is really no unanimity of opinion on any of these things. Um, so if you go back a year and a half ago, we did have a certain amount of unanimity on, of opinion on how we should be dealing with all of this. And over the course of the space of the last 18 months, that broke down. So we have a real diversity of opinion on this. Uh, so there will be people who will see this as, uh, you know, going too quickly uh, and taking unnecessary levels of risk with the most vulnerable population uh, that we have in the province. And then there are other people who are going to say, uh, you know, we probably kept the clamps down for too long and we were doing more damage uh, for the reasons that were articulated before in terms of people's, uh, you know, social experience at a, at, at a time in their life when they're going to want to have the most experience that they can have with their family. So uh, this is probably going to run out in, in a situation in which it's going to be a form of managed risk. And when you, when you take a look at public opinion right now and how they look at this disease, that's how they see it. They don't view it as a light switch. It's a dimmer switch kind of goes up and it kind of goes down, but it's managed risk. It's not something that we can shut down or turn on on a dime. It's something that the public basically feels that we're going to have to learn to live with and we're going to have to modify as we go along. So I think the announcements would be seen as as generally good news, but um, people would be greeting it with a certain level of caution and trepidation about the potential risks that we're being asked to take. Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, Peter Muggeridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer of CARP. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. It's the largest refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. More than 3.2 million have fled Ukraine since Vladimir Putin's forces began their attack. In addition, another 2 million within the country are displaced. Zoomer media friend Majid El Shafi of One Free World International is in Ukraine and spoke with Jane Brown on Monday. First of all, we landed in Poland and we immediately went to the shelters there. We went to the border to see the situation. And the, the border in, in Poland, uh, just alone in Poland, is around 100,000 uh, refugees per day. In total, we passed two million and a half refugees in just uh, in a matter of two weeks. Many of them will cross by foot. Uh, around 60% of them will cross by foot because the cars will not work anymore or there is a huge lineup. And if some of them will walk for 10 miles until reaching Poland. And just two weeks ago, 10 days ago, uh, around uh, six Ukrainians died from cold. Now it's getting warmer, so thank God for that, but uh, it's just dire situation. When they come in, they have to go to the shelters, they have to go to refugee camps or welcome centers, and they simply have to start their life from the beginning. The look on the face is somebody lost, lost everything. They lost their history, their country, they left their loved ones. I, I found a little girl who was saying goodbye to her father. He was taking her and the mother to the border, but he had to return back to fight for his country. 
Right. And that really broke my heart. When you're talking to people there, and uh, presumably you have a translator with you, when you're talking to people, um, what what are they feeling? What are they sensing is the immediate future and the long-term future for Ukraine? Do they feel that Putin is in this for the long haul? Uh, what are the expectations? We are in fear. And quite honestly, the most that comes out of them immediately, besides that they are in a shock, they never thought that really Russia would go ahead with the threat, even though it was all the intelligence report that was presented months and months ago. But they were, they, the most that came out of them was how much they are disappointed from the West of leaving them behind. There is lack of, of cooperation. Yes, sanctions is important, but the effect of the sanctions will be in the long, in the long run. Sanctions is something that they, they appreciate, but it's not making any effect at least not on the military uh, side. They are disappointed from from the, the NATO rejection for no-fly zone over Ukraine. They believe that they can win this war, but they cannot do it without controlling the air. So I believe that they feel that they're left behind and they wanted the West to do more. And as a former refugee and knowing what these people are going through, what will they experience in terms of after effects from all of this? PTSD something and the mental health, especially for the kids. I watch the kids with the siren sound. I watch them how they are in horror and they will run to their mom and they will hug each other and they will run to the shelter. There will be a long mental uh, effect on the, especially the kids, never mind the adults, but especially the kids uh, 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 will suffer a great deal if we don't act quickly to protect them. And that's why part of our humanitarian mission was toys, simply to bring toys to the kids so they can play, so they can enjoy their time, they can, they can just forget. And, and I give this white teddy bear to one of the girls, mm-hmm. and you have no idea, it's like you give her a palace or something. You know, she just played with this white rabbit uh-huh. all over the night. It just She's so happy with that. So it's very important that we care about the children and the future of Ukraine, because kids is the most pure souls. Uh, the most innocent souls. So they are the same if, they, if you are black, white, or brown, if you are Afghanis or Ukrainian or whatever refugee you are. Kids will always be kids. They will be always the angels of God on earth. Zoomer media friend Majid El Shafi of One Free World International speaking to Fight Back from Ukraine. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, Vladimir Zelensky's address to Canada's Parliament. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick on Zoomer Radio. Shortly after Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky addressed Parliament Tuesday and asked Canada for more help, Libby got reaction to his remarks and thoughts on the federal conservative leadership race from the strategy panel. John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Toronto City Councillor Anna Bailau, deputy mayor for the south area of the city, and Charles Souza, former Ontario cabinet minister. You know, politics can be pretty uh, messy, and it can be, um, 
you got to have a thick skin for it. And certainly Patrick Brown's been through a bunch of battles in his past, but I didn't expect it to be so quick and so furious right from the get-go. I mean, the, the guy just declared and he was already, the negative ads were out. So they're preparing. And uh, they eat their own. I, I'm sorry, John, I don't mean to be flipping about it, but it's vicious. And we um, tend to want to respect our leaders and, and ensure that every, you don't, don't air your dirty laundry in public. But they're all accusing one another of lying and of being not, you know, of not being trustworthy, and that really builds doubt in terms of what will they do next. I mean, Pierre, he's got he's got a he's an aggressive manner. He has a quick tongue. He plays, he's a big gimmicky, right? He plays cheap tricks, but he's effective. He's effective when he's most negative, and that's the part that is going to be very dangerous, I think, for him when he tries to be a nation builder. Sheree, he's that he is a nation builder, but he's no longer the darling. He's a bit long in the tooth. And he's low energy right now, and being sick doesn't help. Patrick Brown could be the guy. You can't underestimate him. He can sign up a ton of people. And he, uh, you know, he's now promoting his family. He's promoting himself as fearsome and as a winner. But uh, they all carry some baggage. And this is going to be an interesting fight. And I am enjoying, I must admit, watching it. Anna Bailao, do you think that uh, Jean Charest is uh, sort of above the fray in this, or uh, is he missing out on an opportunity to put the gloves on? I think that this whole thing that happened in the first few days of Patrick Brown jumping uh, into the leadership, it's actually a symptom of what's been happening in the party and the the deep divide that exists inside the party and how this party is after such a this kind of leadership is actually going to be able to rebuild itself, it might actually start becoming a theme that might eventually help John Charette because people are going to look at this, even conservatives, and it's like, oh, my God, this is vicious. Like, yes, we need to think about electing a leader, but we need to think how to lead the nation after, and, and this is just out of this world. But but I agree with Charles. I think I think Patrick Brown is definitely one to watch. I think the energy that he had when he launched his campaign, the organizing capabilities that he's able to tap into, the way that he taps into all kinds of different communities and voters that are usually many times not conservative voters and areas of of the country that you know might not be as willing uh, to vote conservative. I think it, it'll be a an interesting one to watch, for sure. He can sign up all kinds of people, but it's Ontario. Uh, is that going to translate into a push across the country, John? Well, that's what I think is yet to be seen, is, is that level of organization. You know, there's, there's no question, people that know Patrick know that he is a hard, one of the hardest working politicians that's been proven time and time again, and, and certainly his you know, rise to to the to lead the Ontario PC party was you know was was incredible because no one have never thought saw that coming until at the very end and and so there is a sense of of his organizational skills but the way the party leadership is set up you have to have, it's a pointed system so it's not a question of how many members you sign up in one specific province it's how many you sign up across. 338 riding. So that's yet to be seen, but I wouldn't underestimate Patrick. The other thing, too, just on the fighting, look, every leadership um, worth its salt uh, is going to have battles, and people are going to go into the corners with their elbows up. It's it's, for, it's high-stakes politics, no matter if you're running for, for mayor, if you're running for council, if you're running for leader of any party. So I'm not surprised by it. You know, the Liberals have had their fair share of fights and and, uh, and so forth over the course of the last little while. So, you know, it's to be expected. I would say, as, as somebody who, who's following this closely, that they should focus on the opposition and less on themselves because all of this fighting gets you know gets the opposition um, you know riled up 
something also allows for them to have commercials during the next election uh, when whoever ends up winning uh, gets gets you know wins with some level of of of, of attacks uh, attached to them. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischmann-Hillard High Road. Charles Souza, former Provincial Cabinet Minister and Toronto City Councillor. Anna Bailao, who's Deputy Mayor for the South Area of the City. This is Zuma Radio's Best to Fight Back. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Libby also talked about Zelensky's address to MPs and Senators and the continuing call for a no-fly zone with a couple of experts. Dr. Eric Willett, professor in the Department of Defense Studies at Royal Military College of Canada, and Dr. Oral Brown, professor of international relations and political science at the University of Toronto. It was a powerful address where he basically said to the West, you tell us that you are supporting us, but you need to convert us to concrete results. You have to do more. Uh, among the things he asked for was this maximalist uh, request that uh, the entire airspace over Ukraine should be closed uh, to Russia. This is unlikely to happen, but there's so many more things that could be done. Let me point out that three prime ministers from Europe are traveling by train, Poland, the Czech Republic, and Slovakia, to go to Kiev to be there in solidarity with the president and the government of Ukraine. That is symbolic, but it is something that sends an unequivocal message to Russia that Ukraine will not be abandoned. Well, uh, there are a lot of people who say that Ukraine has been abandoned. Dr. Ouellette, uh, your impression of the speech? Uh, well, it was uh, pretty much as uh, most people expected in terms of asking for help and uh, presenting in a very uh, uh, emotional way uh, the, what's going on in Ukraine. However, I noticed one interesting uh, little detail that uh, when he asked for the no-fly zone, he did not uh, mention the Russian Air Force as being the problem, but focused on cruise missiles coming uh, to uh, the Ukrainian airspace. And that's an interesting detail because I think he understands that um, air-to-air combat between NATO pilots and Russian pilots is obviously a no-no. But uh, NATO pilots shooting down unmanned missiles, uh, that might be okay uh, in his presentation to the, the wider public in the West, although it would lead to the same problems in the end. But he adjusted a little bit his pitch. I, I found it quite interesting. What do you see as the next phase, Dr. Brown? It depends a great deal on whether Ukraine can uh, can hold on. Uh, uh, yes, you know, they are bombing cities. But, you know, what we know from uh, previous wars, including World uh, War II, that you create a lot of rubble and so on, uh, but then that uh, can also give advantage to defenders. You have to send the troops in and they have to fight uh, battles in the city. And that is an entire different kind of, uh, situation and uh, they will take a huge number of casualties if Ukraine can hold on. And I think this is what Zelensky basically wants to make sure that they're able to hold on. Time is, is absolutely of essence. And what the Russians would like to do is they would like to wrap this up as quickly as possible because the longer it lasts, the more risks there are for Russia itself, the more risks to the Putin regime, the more doubt there may be within. Uh, the elites, uh, whether it is the security elites or the military elites and the economic elites. 
Dr. Ouellette, last words to you. Uh, they're talking. I mean, what would they be talking about a partition of Ukraine? It doesn't sound like Zelensky would agree to that. No, not at all. Uh, the, the, the Russians have put their uh, the stickers on the ground just to get the ceasefire, uh, accepting the annexation of, of uh, Crimea, accepting the, uh, the independent republics in the Donbass, and uh, changing their constitution with uh, no not joining NATO and the EU. That was for the Russians. It's just the starting of negotiation, and it will ask for more. So disbanding the uh, Ukrainian military, probably have elections where Russians will have to vouch who's running. I mean, they would put that kind of conditions uh, right now. So what Ukraine needs to do is exactly that: is to hold as long as possible. So then the price to pay for Russia is higher and higher. So then they will lower the bar in terms of what they want for a first ceasefire. Dr. Eric Wallet, professor in the Department of Defense Studies at Royal Military College of Canada, and Dr. Oral Brown, professor of international relations and political science at the U of T. I'm Bob Comsick, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Bob Comsick. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics, and we also rely on you for your valued opinions. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. While the West stays clear of a no-fly zone over Ukraine, Eve believes it's needed. You can, we can do everything. We can take you know, sanctions, everything. Russia will still get money from other countries. It, it doesn't matter what we do. He's not going to stop. He's not going to stop. And that's the brutal truth. And I really think there should be a no-fly zone. And I'm saying that, taking everything into account because everybody's doing everything around him to just, you know, they're not putting the, you know, the the thing right where it has to be, and that's in destroying him. Ron and Guelph had this take on the federal Tory leadership. When you talk about the conservatives, um, the word moderate comes up, and I think this is the only way, it's not about the conservatives, voting for somebody that they think is nice. They have to vote for somebody that can actually get elected as Prime Minister of Canada. Bill from Brampton weighed in on travel testing. I'm going to Trinidad and Tobago to, for my mother-in-law's 90th birthday. I'm still looking at an RCPCR test that cost me anywhere between 100 and $120. So the two of us were talking, you know, over $200 senior. I mean, it's outrageous. Well, the fact that we can go, obviously, I'm happy with that. I mean, I've been sitting at home for the last two years, you know, behaving myself. And that's another worry we have right now, since everything is coming off. No more mouth guards and everything else. So now I've got to basically isolate myself till I go for the test, because I want to make sure it's, it's negative. Lori enjoyed her vacation experience, despite the travel testing. We just returned uh, in February from a trip to the Bahamas. We booked it 
a year ago thinking that we were going to have no problem now, but of course that didn't happen. We were always people that we cruised. We went on cruise ships and we decided we didn't want to do that anymore, but um, we went to a resort for the first time. We probably would not have gone had we been able to get our money back, but we weren't. So we took the risk, we went, and everything was great. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Caroline in Halliburton, who's not happy with the start of the federal Tory leadership campaign. I was really looking forward to this race and seeing what the candidates had to say. But if they're going to start off by scoring off each other, um, they are sort of off my list. I want to hear from someone who's going to bring the party together and help to help the country, basically. I want to hear what their plans are. I don't want to hear them call each other names. And if that's going to be the way this is going to go, uh, the Conservatives haven't a hope. As my husband says, they're too stupid to rule. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us between noon and one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416 367 9636. I'm Bob Comsick for Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.